All right, hour number two, the Pete Callender Show, News Talk 1110-993-WBT. As we've uh, covered over the last couple of days with a party line 4-3 to three vote, Democrats on the North Carolina Supreme Court determined that voter-approved state constitutional amendments uh, could be tossed out because they were put on the ballot for us to vote on by a, quote, gerrymandered legislature. Joining me now is the Speaker of the North Carolina House, Tim Moore. How are you, Mr. Speaker? Doing well, Pete. It's good to be with you. It's been a while. It's been a while. So you're just now, uh, you're out of session, so now you're just uh, practicing law, just doing the law thing? Well, I'm actually, we're, we're, in, we're in session today. Oh, my goodness. We, we, but we're not taking any votes this week. We're just in an admin session to, today through Thursday, but uh, that, that's it. So, But, no, I'm actually back home in uh, Kings Mountain a good bit, trying to practice law and, uh, uh, of course, uh, trying to... Uh, out fundraising and helping our Republican candidates who are running all over the state as well. So, uh, matter of fact, we got some really good ones running right over there in Mecklenburg County too. Indeed. So uh, maybe uh, maybe you can uh, rely on the legal expertise here and help explain some of this stuff to me. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I did watch some uh, Perry Mason as a kid, but um, my understanding of what the state supreme court decided is that essentially they created a test, this uh, three prong test. Uh, for the trial courts to look at. And as I understand the test, you have to basically, as a trial court judge, come up with a hypothetical lawmaker that would have been elected to a seat, and then you have to guess as to how that hypothetical lawmaker would have voted on a particular ballot referendum going to the people. But the people's vote is to be ignored. Do I have that right? Uh, You know, you do have that right, and unfortunately the court simply has it wrong all the way. I mean, think about this, the, the, the hubris that, that, that's here. You have four justices, four Democratic justices on the Supreme Court who, all in, for all intents and purposes, struck down two amendments to the Constitution approved by the people. One is, of course, photo ID for voting, which 36 other states have, and the other is to cap the amount of income taxes you can be charged. But, but here's what's also crazy. There were four amendments, four amendments that actually passed that year. But they only struck down the two they didn't like. One other one, was, well, I think, it was Marcy's Law, which yep. was for victims. Then there was a there was another amendment. And I can't recall what it was. The fishing and um, hunting, the constitutional right to hunt and fish. There you go. The constitutional right to fish and hunt. So, so they they didn't they didn't touch those, but they used this rationale to strike down voter ID and limiting taxes. I, it, it makes no sense because why in the world? Why in the world would, if it was a quote illegitimate legislature, would anything it did be valid? You know what? If they think it was a, an illegitimate legislature, why don't they send back their pay raises they got that year? You know, I don't, I don't think we'll be waiting <laughs> on those checks to come in anytime soon. Let's uh, not get crazy here. This is uh, that would directly affect them and their wallets. I mean, come on now. <laughs> but, there you go. But but the, the whole, I mean, I've seen some crazy stuff over the years. I've seen some bad court decisions. I've seen bad legislation. I've seen all kinds of stuff. But the thought that four justices think they know better than 55% of the people who went to the polls, and by the way, some of them were actually elected into office that very year, that those same voters who, who put them in office somehow uh, didn't know what they were doing when they voted for an amendment to the Constitution on, on voter ID and on limiting taxes. It's, it's just outrageous. You know, of course, one of those justices, uh, Irvin, is actually up for election this year himself. And I want to hear him uh, actually try to explain to the voters, the, people, the very people he's going to say, hey, vote for me, 
uh, how he's going to ask for their vote when he just said in this decision their votes didn't matter uh, because even though they wanted voter ID, uh, he said no and, and stripped it out of the Constitution. I mean, that is this has never happened before. I mean, never in the history of the country in any state. I mean, so this is just it's just so outrageous. So I'll read to you a part of an email that I got when, uh, yesterday afternoon when I was discussing the, um, the ruling. This came from Lee out in Western North Carolina, uh, that uh, the North Carolina Supreme Court decision has me absolutely livid. It's so blatantly anti-people, anti-democracy as to be tyrannical. So what next? How do we fight this kind of judicial tyranny? Um, I, I am boiling. Uh, so, yeah. So what is the next step? How, how do you fight back? Is it just, you know, don't boo, uh, go vote kind of thing? But is there nothing that the legislative branch can do? Well, uh, one, number one, in terms of this litigation, we're exploring all options that we have. We have uh, in terms of you know, appealing this to the U.S. Supreme Court, possibly. Uh, of course, it's going back to a trial court, so you'll have that process. But we're looking at every single option that we have there from the judicial side. Uh, then ultimately, uh, the, the, the voters of the, of the state are going to have an opportunity to speak on it and hopefully elect two, uh, two good conservative uh, judges who will actually follow the law. And say so Rich Dietz and Trey Allen, who were just you know, great, just absolutely outstanding jurists, uh, who actually believe in the Constitution, are running. And I hope those two gentlemen win. Uh, in terms of what else the legislature can do, I mean, this the legislature has other checks and balances that it can employ uh, when it comes to officers who act uh, inappropriately in, in executing their duties. And, you know, those may be some conversations that we have to have at a later date. But, uh, uh, you know, right now, of course, we're not in full session, and so uh, all we can do is, is is deal with this from the litigation standpoint. We're going to fight fight all the way on it, and then the other, of course, is uh, through the uh, uh, through the election this year. But you know, here here's the other thing too. Think of the steps that the far left goes to to fight anything that has anything to do with election integrity. I mean, it's like it's almost like when when someone is fighting any kind of safeguards. Even if you don't want to think they're up to no good, it kind of begs the question, if, if you're not, why try to block a thing like simply showing an ID to vote? And they, I mean, they have gone to turning over, you know, centuries of precedent uh, to, to, to literally do that in this case. And that ought to give, that gives me uh, concern and pause, and it ought to give everybody else uh, real concern. Well, and one of the uh, knocks that you and other uh, members of the Republican uh, majority in the legislature, one of the knocks against the, the, the iteration of voter ID was that it was too broad. There were a lot, you were getting hit from folks on the right election integrity people that said you've made it too expansive. It's not strict enough. You were getting criticized. If I recall, it was like among, if not the most sort of liberal kind of voter ID law in America. And it still wasn't, adequate for the plaintiffs that's you're you're 100 spot on and of course we we drafted that legislation to be consistent with what other states have done and and also to to be more um permissive in terms of identification knowing what we were dealing with with the courts and how the courts have, have treated these laws in our state yeah and so even doing all that they'll they, they have no shame and and i don't usually talk about a court case and what judges do like that but this one is just so outrageous it's just i, I told someone earlier today 
they ought to not be wearing black robes. They should be wearing blue robes. I guess it's going to be blue and red. I mean, it's going to be hyper-partisan. Uh, and it's outrageous. I mean, think about this, Steve. When the person goes in front of a judge, you want the, the judge to rule on the facts and the law. You know, you've got two parents battling over a child over a child in a custody case. The judge shouldn't rule because one's a Republican or a Democrat or, or any kind of thing else. You need to apply the law fairly. And when courts start acting like this, they're not applying the law fairly, and it undermines confidence in the judiciary. And that, and, and I'm telling you, they have done great damage to the rule of law in the state. But you know what? We uh, we, we think it's going to get fixed. It's going to probably take the elections to do it. Uh, and but of course, we're going to fight every way we can. And uh, and, and, and we'll deal with it because the, at the end of the day, whether or not I think it's a good idea or not, the voters of this state, the voters of this state think it's a great idea. And, of course, I think it's a great idea, too. But we, you have to stand up for what the voters of this state did and how they voted. If you, stop, if you don't respect the, the voters and what they do at the poll site, it undermines the entire foundation of a democracy. So this may um, a little out of left field, but uh, you're around the Raleigh area enough. Uh, I figure I might ask you, what is going on with the DA up there and our attorney general? Is uh, like my read on that is like he really wants to be able to lie about political opponents. Uh, I don't I'm, I'm trying to figure out why the case is is being pursued. Do you have any read on what that is about? I really don't. I, I have simply, uh, um, I have simply followed the story like like so many have, and and I don't know if there's if there's more to it, if there's a backstory, so to speak. But it certainly is a. It, it certainly does not look good for the attorney general. I mean, it, it, because he is in the position of arguing that, uh, basically saying that by his lawsuit that he should be able to be dishonest in his ads and to be dishonest, and so that is a uh, man. I don't know how you do. I don't know how you defend that. I don't know how you. Go to the voters and say that uh, you know that, that that you ought to be able to lie. I mean that's that's crazy. Right. Uh, but there are some. You know, but yeah. But I mean. But I get you know there have been some folks who've raised some First Amendment issues and so forth. So it, it's it's a it's a bit of a complicated uh, complicated uh, cup of tea there. But I will say that uh, whenever I've done ads, you know we we always make sure that anything that's being said is positive is accurate. And and uh, not not anything that's going to be uh, slanderous or libelous about somebody. And uh, it sounds like the AG may have uh, may have not made such a careful assessment of what they did. But uh, you know, and ultimately, uh, candidates are accountable for these ads. That's why you have to that little disclaimer. You know that I'm you know whoever and 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 I approve this ad because at the end of the day, doesn't matter who produced it, doesn't matter who paid for it, whatever it was. If the candidate endorses the ad, the candidate owns it. So. Uh, I don't know how it gets worked out. I don't know uh, where it goes, but uh, it's certainly going to be something interesting to watch. Yeah, I'll say it's uh, it's a head scratcher for me. I, like like you said, I don't know what the backstory is. I have no idea, um, but it's it is uh, it's a head scratcher. <laughs> All right. Uh, hey, is. yeah, Speaker Moore, we always appreciate you stopping by. Thanks for your time today, sir. Glad to be with you. You take care. All right, that's uh, North Carolina Speaker of the House Tim Moore. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Thanks again to Speaker Tim Moore for joining us. Always appreciate it. I should ask him what kind of law he practices. He may he may be like a state law or something, and he doesn't know when I ask him about the... No, I'm just kidding. He, uh, like, I, I've... 
I have been following this story about the attorney general and the the lies that he told in his uh, campaign ad in 2020 and the attempt to uh, file a criminal charge against him and his campaign, I guess, uh, over that lie. I did not know that this law existed in North Carolina. Full disclosure, before uh, Forsyth County District Attorney Jim O'Neill filed the complaint with the State Board of Elections, I was not aware that there was a law that prohibited political candidates from lying about their political opponents in a campaign with recklessness in an effort to defame, right? I, I, I was not aware that was on the books. And maybe that's the point of all of this. Like, they're going to run this thing through as far as they can to figure out whether or not it's a violation of the, uh, you know, the U.S. Constitution's free speech amendment. I, I don't know. Because there are, there are limitations, right? You can suffer penalties, for defaming somebody, libeling, slandering someone, right? There are penalties. Those are those are not criminal, though. So this would be like a misdemeanor and a fine of some kind. And so maybe this is all about testing this and getting it thrown off the books or something. I, I don't know. If it is, I'm not sure the AG wanted this to be the test case, what with his likely run for governor coming up. (laughs) I'm not sure how you run on a campaign, you know, elect me for governor. I want to lie about people, right? That's because that's his argument that, I mean, okay, he says I didn't lie, but it's obvious that the campaign ad was a lie and they're defending it. Now he keeps saying, so he's now lying. I mean, we've already determined what he is. Now we're just haggling over price, I guess. Um, He's saying that he didn't lie about lying. But when you read what the lie was and know that that's a lie, then can you believe him when he says it's not a lie? No. I don't think so. I know this is like, what was that thing? The, the, the mind bender, the, whatever it is, the little riddles you meet, you meet three men on the road and one of them lies all the time. One of them says he tells the truth all the time. And one of them says he lies some of the time, whatever. And you got to figure out which guy's giving you the wrong directions or something. I don't remember. That's what I feel like with this case. Because the Wake County DA is a Democrat as well. But a Wake County grand jury yesterday took the first step towards potential criminal charges against Attorney General Josh Stein and two of his top aides related to an attack ad from the 2020 election. Now, remember, the grand jury just decides whether probable cause exists to return a true bill of indictment. Okay, they're going to listen to the evidence. And again, the evidence is only presented by the prosecution. This is where you get the uh, uh, the old axiom that, you know, you can indict a ham sandwich because the ham sandwich doesn't have the ability well to speak, really. And so therefore doesn't have the ability to hire a lawyer. Or in the ham sandwich doesn't have any money either. Uh, So, because it's a sandwich, obviously. Like a hot dog. Anyway, a Wake County grand jury took this first step yesterday. It did not formally charge the Democratic Attorney General with committing any crimes. So writes Will Duran at the Charlotte Observer. Well, he's McClatchy. Uh, He's up in Raleigh at the News and Observer. But the grand jury requested that the Wake County DA's office present it with an indictment to consider. 
So they were asking for the indictment. Let, let's see what you got. Wake County DA Lauren Freeman said that could happen as soon as next month, which, of course, there is a timeline here. There is a two-year statute of limitations. And so if they don't move on this before October, which is when the ad ran in 2020, then uh, then he dodges any kind of accountability for it. And she has personally recused herself from making any decisions on the case. She, she anticipates that this is going to happen as soon as next month. District Attorney Freeman continues to pursue her uh, nonsense investigation over a campaign ad that is true from an election that has long since passed using a 91-year-old statute that has never been used against any other candidate, said Stein's campaign, which sued to have the law in question overturned. So they, they tried to get the whole law thrown out. Stein contends that it's unconstitutional and that the only reason it hasn't been thrown out previously is because this is the first time it's ever been used. However, that has not dissuaded the DA's office from moving forward, nor did it stop the grand jury on Monday. Now, I did get an email uh, or a message from a fellow who works up in, um, in Raleigh who said, is it possible that Freeman may have been offended that Josh Stein and his employee, who both knew better, lied about the district attorney's role in the rape kit process. And that's possible, too. Like I said, it's a head-scratcher. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Later in the week, we're going to have Congressman Dan Bishop uh, back on the program. Looking forward to that. That'll be on Friday. And uh, I mentioned that because we got a call from uh, Bernie was just telling me that we got a call from our pal Dean. He Dean of the many questions, Dean of questions. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, Dean was asking about the ad that's running uh, on uh, WBT. And there's the disclaimer that you hear at the very end of the ad. That says uh, something to the effect. I don't know the exact quote, but it says something to the effect of. Uh, paid f- paid for with congressional funds or something like that. And um, was Dean the one that called like several weeks ago when it first started airing? That was someone else. Okay. So I guess I should answer this question because people are asking. This is um, what they call franking. It's called franking. I, look, I don't make up the terms. So there, uh, there are congressional allocations for constituent communications, I believe, newsletters, used to get letters from, uh, uh, in the mail from your congressman, you know, and they would, uh, they would use these funds in order to, you know, let people in the district know what's going on. That was the idea behind the, uh, the and I don't know why they call it franking. It, maybe it was named after Barney Frank. I don't know. There was, but there was some. There was some rule in the, you know, Leviathan of the federal government that uh, you can use money to pay for constituent communications. I believe that's generally the uh, generally the uh, the correct idea. And uh, I want to say it may have been in like the eighties or something. There was a whole big scandal around franking 
privileges and something. People were abusing the money. They were using it for junkets or something. I don't even remember what I was like, dude, I was in like third grade. So I, I don't remember what all of that was about, but I seem to recall there was some scandal about it. And then they like did all these reforms to it. And then you don't really hear a lot of it. I don't think, but that's what this is. That's where that, that's where that comes from. There's, yeah, there's something to do with the it's constituent communications, and you're allowed to you're allowed to use the money for uh, talking to your uh, voters. Anyway, um, so I hope that answers your question, Dean. Unless, of course, it was simply a question in order to drive some sort of allegation or attack or uh, some unspoken argument, because that's what Dean likes to do. <laughs> I love you, Dean, but like, just make your assertion. So I give you the, that's as far you can look it up. It's franking. That's the process. You can Google it. Franking again. I did not come up with the name of it. It's not my word. I didn't use it. Um, what else? Oh, we've got a uh, federal court has denied a motion by Democrats that sought to keep the Green Party candidates off of the North Carolina ballots in November. This is not a good look, Democrats. First, you're throwing off the uh, the referenda that we all voted on, and uh, and then you were trying to keep the the Green Party uh, from even getting onto the ballot for voters to pick. Uh, sounds like some people are not really down with democracy. Who's protecting the democracy here? The decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the first, uh, Fourth Circuit upholds an order previously issued by U.S. District Judge James Deaver III that requires state elections officials to place the Green Party's U.S. Senate candidate, fellow by the name of Matthew Ho, as well as Wake County State Senate candidate Michael Trudeau, to put them both on ballots alongside other parties' candidates. The North Carolina Democratic Party and the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee had sought to prevent the Green Party candidates from landing on the ballot. Why? They worked very hard against this. So part of it is that, well, like, uh, I'd say 99% of it is they're afraid that Matthew Ho is going to take votes away from Sherry Beasley. They have no problem with a libertarian being on the ballot. They have a big problem with a Green Party candidate being on the ballot because they believe the libertarian voters would otherwise go to Ted Budd, the Republican I, I always say his name like that. I don't know why. It's just fun to say that way. Thank you, President Trump. But Ted Budd is on the ballot, and they think libertarians will draw votes from him. And so they were totally fine with libertarians maintaining their ballot position. But because the Green Party had gotten decertified, because the state has rules about third parties, or, other, you know, I guess they're not all third parties, but non-Republican and non-Democrat parties, you got to keep a certain amount of... Uh, Voters basically supporting your candidates for governor and I think president. I, I forget. They changed the rules at some point. And uh, but they made it easier. The Republicans actually made it easier. They call them ballot access laws and Republicans made it easier for third parties to be on the ballot. They did that when they took over the General Assembly. And now you got a Green Party candidate they, after the party got decertified because not enough people voted for the Green Party candidates in the last general election they they got to go out and they got to get signatures just to get on the ballot not yay i'm going to vote for you signatures just yeah you should be allowed to run and so they got enough signatures and i said earlier 
Because there's this 1% that I suspect is tied to, I guess it's a rumor at this point, that uh, there were Republican operatives that helped organize and implement the petition-gathering strategy. Because Republicans thought the same thing as Democrats, that if you can get the Green Party candidate on the ballot, it's going to take some votes away from Sherry Beasley, the Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate. And so then you had the allegations of fraud, and then you had the Democrats that were uh, making phone calls and sending text messages. Uh, they, they, they went and got through the Freedom of Information Act, these Democrat national groups, uh, and the governor's office, by the way, which totally isn't coordinating anything here. They, uh, they got the list of all the people's names and the signatures from the petitions. And they then began texting them and calling them and pretending to be Green Party representatives, asking them to take their name off the petition list. Because the best way to protect the environment is not to siphon votes away from Sherry Beasley, but it's to vote for Sherry Beasley. That was the Democrats' lie, or the pitch, I should say. It was their pitch. It was their sales pitch. Unfortunately for them and the people that were doing the work, they did not know that Matthew Ho was the candidate and they texted him or they called him. They also texted or called the Green Party of North Carolina chairman. So they have direct evidence that this was occurring. And the uh, Democrats then tried to run out the clock, tried to block it so they could not get on the ballot before the ballots had to be, uh, you know, had to be uh, made final by a certain deadline. And uh, the judges that were hearing the case finally said, no, that you're, you're going to put the party on there. You're going to put the candidates on there. And uh, we're not sure whether or not the uh, Democrats are going to try to appeal. Not sure. I guess it depends on how much they value democracy. Oh, oh, look at that. North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper. Sorry, Ray Cooper. My good friend, Ray. Uh, He is now coming out uh, in support of lying about political opponents. (laughs) He's he's supporting Josh Stein. Says, um, he runs counter to the First Amendment and threatens anyone who wants to criticize a public official. Uh, No, it, it, it doesn't... I don't know about threatening anybody who wants to criticize a public official, but uh, yeah, Governor Cooper coming down on Josh Stein's side there in defense of lying during your campaign for the state's top judicial officer. And then there's this. I had to double check this because I wasn't quite sure. Could it have been just somebody with the same name who happened to represent uh, an injured child? Could it have been the same man who won the big settlement low those many years ago and parlayed that into a political run? Meteoric rise, didn't kiss any of the proper rings on his way up, uh, and then, uh, you know, fathered an illegitimate child and came crashing down to earth like Icarus. But now he's back to the ambulance chase. I'm sorry, he's back to the... uh, He's back to the law. John Edwards. It is, in fact, the same John Edwards. And apparently, he's in Charlotte now? 
Okay. And the case that he just won was against Atrium, formerly Carolina's Medical Center. The North Carolina Supreme Court, in a three to two ruling, so I guess there were two recusals, but it appears to be a uh, partisan breakdown as well. They ruled for John Edwards. Yes, that John Edwards, former U.S. Senator, Democrat from North Carolina, and former vice presidential nominee, Democrat. John Edwards, now back to suing hospitals and such, and he just got the state Supreme Court, Democrats, to strike down 90 years of precedent. I don't know why. Is it? Um, he's just that good. He's just that good. And what was the precedent over? Well, if you are a nurse, um, heads up, you're screwed, which is going to go. I mean, this is the perfect thing to do for the um, for the healthcare industry, which, as I understand, it's just been doing great since the pandemic. Of course, this could also force uh, more people into accepting GovCo control of the healthcare industry because you can't sue them. You know, they get indemnity. But now you're going to be able to sue nurses, even if the nurses are taking the orders from the doctor. So you're going in for a surgery, you're going under with anesthesia, and the doctor says, hey, you want to put them under with this amount or something? And if the nurse anesthetist doesn't agree but follows the order, then you can sue that nurse and you can destroy that nurse's life, take all their money, which means what? Malpractice insurance. Mm Mm-hmm. And we all know the big bucks that nurses make. They can afford it. All the malpractice insurance. Oh, look at, yeah. I mean, that's that, that's why they earn all that money. is so they can pay the malpractice insurance. What could go wrong? See, in 2010, there was a three-year-old who went into uh, Carolina's Medical Center for a heart condition and to have a procedure for that heart condition. John Edwards says, quote, they gave her anesthesia, which was the biggest danger she had. Her heart stopped as a result of the anesthesia. She ended up being without oxygen and blood to her brain for about 12 to 13 minutes. It left the child with permanent brain damage, cerebral palsy, and developmental delays. Edwards sued the hospital, the three doctors, and the certified registered nurse anesthetist. Action against the nurse was blocked by Bird v. Marion General Hospital, which is, yeah, that's the uh, the soap opera, I think. No, this is a, a case, Bird v. Marion General Hospital, that protected nurses that were working under a doctor's supervision. So if the doctor is directing the nurse to do stuff and the nurse does it, the nurse doesn't hold the liability because the doctor is telling the nurse to do these things because... The doctor is supposed to be where the buck stops, which is why the doctor has the malpractice insurance, right? Okay. Twelve years later, the state Supreme Court handed down a 41-page opinion that says nurses can be held legally liable. Look, I hate to play this card, but I'm going to. Is it possible that there's a little bit of jock sniffer syndrome going on here? Oh, it's John Edwards. 
Oh my gosh, he's arguing in front of our court. We love John Edwards. Is that possible? The ruling passed a three to two majority. Justice Tamara Barringer, Republican judge, dissenting, said the court overreached in its opinion. In judicially changing the standard, the three justice majority appears to create liability without causation, allowing a nurse to be held liable for negligent collaboration in the treatment ultimately chosen by the physician. Such a policy choice should be made by the legislature, not three judge, just three of the Supreme Court. It was a lengthy dissent, and they they couldn't even establish that a nurse acts negligently in collaborating on a treatment plan with a doctor. They didn't even prove that, Barringer said. So good luck, nurses. 